thank you, Lord, that we can come together as brothers and as sons and as men. And that we can gather in your name, in your house and in your presence and before your word. And, and we can spend this time, Lord. And we ask, Father, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That your will would be done in this time that we've set aside, Lord. That it would be done in our hearts as we hear these truths, as, as the, the eternal word of God moves through our soul this morning, Lord. We pray that it would accomplish its perfect work. We pray that your spirit would continue to mold us and shape us into men of God. Uh, that our lives would count, Lord, and that you would um, bless this time, Father. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of men you want us to be in every area of our lives, Lord. Uh, that we would be a, a, a pleasing example of you, Lord, to the world, to our families, and, um, and to our church. So please be with us, Father. We, uh, we bow our knee to you. We lift our hearts and our hands to you, Lord. And we know that we can do nothing apart from you. So please, Father, just instruct us, teach us. We pray right now, Lord, that you would wash us in the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would just cleanse us, Lord, from all sin, every thought, every action, every deed, every uh, reaction, Lord, every carnal tendency, every struggle, Lord, every action. Lord, we just pray that right now you'd just wash it away, that you'd cleanse our conscience, Lord, that you'd uh, just remind us again that the cross of Jesus is our, is our claim, it's our plea, it's our it's our all, Lord, that we have nothing in and of ourselves, but we just plead the blood of Jesus Christ upon our whole lives right now, Lord. We plead the blood upon our marriages, upon our children, upon our jobs, Lord, and, and upon our very lives, Lord. We pray that you would just uh, wash us, Lord. And we just thank you so much for that, for that promise and that treasure. So, Lord, be with us, please. Um, just grace us in these days as, as men, Lord. Let us be fruitful. Let us be used of you. Bless this time, and we bless your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hopefully this, this is the last week we'll be talking about Satan. So far we've talked about who he is. We've talked about his history in heaven, and how he was cast into the earth. We've talked about what he is up to now on earth, and we've talked about where things are headed uh, with the earth in his hands. And so today, we're going to talk about um, some myths, fables, and fantasies uh, that have kind of crept into the Christian belief system concerning Satan, and also we'll talk about the wiles of uh, the devil, some of his methods, maybe some of the ones that we don't think of uh, quite so prevalently, you know, that aren't, you know, the, the, the ones that are right, right in our face in Scripture, maybe some of the more subtle things. And then uh, we'll close out by talking about our defense. Um, and again, not maybe so much the things that we're, that we're, you know, we hear every day about it, but some of the other things that, that are more practical uh, to us. So, um, Let's begin with the myths, the fables, and the fantasies. And I have seven things here, and, and I want to move through them somewhat quickly, but I also don't want to leave your questions unanswered. So 
uh, after each one, I'll pause and I'll say, is there any questions on that? And if you have a question on it, ask it at that time because, uh, you know, that way I'm not just shooting blanks at you, but I can maybe, or we can look at the scripture um, in the most relevant way. So, um, the myths, the fables, and the fantasies. In medieval times, the devil was often pictured as a, a long-tailed, cloven-hoofed jester with two horns and a red suit. <laughs> and the reason for that uh, picture was a combination of two things. One was the resurgence of um, satanic teaching, not satanic, uh, it, it, you know, from the witch standpoint, but I mean like the, because of the Reformation, because of um, the, the resurgence of the Bible, because of the Reformers, and uh, the Bible that was being taught, Satan was again being brought back into uh, focus by people. For a long time, he had kind of taken a back seat. He had kind of just been oblivion, you know, type of thing. And, 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 and so people were being taught again. And so there was a resurgence of teaching on the devil in, in those days. But it was mixed with a great deal of folklore. You know, that had been brought in by uh, some of the writers of the day, some of the art and, and different things and the drama and all that, you know. So, so kind of a, a, a blending of the two things created this picture of Satan as this cloven-hoofed, red-suited, you know, um, being that was more of a clown than, than an actual uh, entity, you know. So... So, so there are a lot of myths that have kind of carried through in people's minds that they still think, well, this is who Satan is, but yet it, it isn't what the Bible teaches us at all concerning uh, who, who he is. So what are some of these things? What are some of the things that people believe about Satan that are just completely scripturally false? They have absolutely no root in scripture. Uh, first of all, that Satan is the evil equivalent to God. In other words, like the, like the, the, the Buddhists have their, their uh, concept of the yin and the yang, you know, and you have the, the, the light and the dark, and that uh, as God is to righteousness and light and goodness, so Satan is the equivalent of darkness and, uh, uh, you know, evil and, and, and grotesque. And that's just not the case. It, it, he cannot and does not act independently of himself. He is not just an opposing force of evil. Um, but rather, he is created by God and he is subservient to him. We, we've looked at that. So we don't have to, to go into all the verses about it. But, but he is not independent. He is uh, separate. Now, Number two, and, and, and I'll, I'll ask for questions on it after this one because the two things are kind of like co-conjoined. But the second one is that he cannot act independently of God. There's many people that think that he can. That Satan can kind of just do whatever he wants and that, you know, God uh, has to kind of disperse his resources and, and, and combat where he can, you know, but, but that Satan can kind of get his licks in. In other words, without God's permission or without God's knowledge of something, that Satan can just do something 
and, and, and God more or less says, oh, well, I have to put my resources here and here, and I missed that one. I didn't catch that, that blow or something like that. You know, kind of like we do with our bills. You know, we have so much resources, and we have so many more bills, and so we kind of choose where we're going to put our resources, you, you know, and, and, and if something slips through the cracks, you know, we'll pick it up next month or something like that. And we can kind of sometimes think that that's the way God handles Satan. That he does his best, but, you know, Satan is powerful and, and, and no, 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 no. The Bible doesn't teach that. And so I want, we, we've talked about these verses in Job, but I want to show them to you because they're that important as far as our understanding that we don't give Satan more credit than he deserves uh, in this thing. And, and so in, in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, if you've never read the book of Job, is there anybody in here that never read the book of Job at all? Okay, uh, you really got to read it. At least, at least read the first three chapters and the last four chapters. <laughs> okay, if you, if you skip the middle, you can, you can still go to heaven. But, but I think that, that Christianity 101 should have Job the first three chapters and the last four chapters. Uh, because, because there is something here... Uh, information that is so priceless um, for us that, that you have to know this. So Job chapter, I'm not going to read the, the introduction that tells us who Job was. Basically, he's a righteous man. He had a large family. He was extremely wealthy. He prayed daily for his children. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He feared God. He was a good man. And what happens to good people? Well, verse 6. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God, and that's speaking of the angels, both the righteous and the unrighteous, we've talked about this, the demons and and those that did not fall, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, and I pray that the Lord never says this about any of us, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and escheweth or hateth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for nothing? Hast not thou made a hedge about him, a fence, and around his house, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Now, that verse is pregnant with meaning, application, insight. I mean, first of all, we already said Job was blessed, that he's prospered, he's rich, he's got a good family. Now we find out where it comes from. It didn't come from Job. It came from God. All of those things come from God. We also learn right off the bat right here that Satan cannot touch it. He says out of his own mouth, there is a hedge. There is a fence. There is a barrier. You have given, provided, and you are protecting. And I can't get at him. That's what Satan is saying out of his own mouth. But verse 11 He says, but put forth now thine hand, 
and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so here's the accusation. Now, verses from our past week should be flashing up in your mind. You know, Revelation chapter 12, where it says that he's the accuser of the brethren. You know, here he is. He says, Job makes an, I mean, Satan makes an accusation against Job. He says, if you lift the fence and let me at him, I could get him to curse you. That's what Satan says to God about Job. And so, verse 12, it says, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So, notice, God lifts the hedge of protection that is around all of Job's possessions, but he does not lift the hedge of protection that is around Job himself. Do you see that? In other words, God sets the restriction. He says you can touch his substance, but you can't touch him. And Satan cannot go beyond what God said. And so it says that Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, you can read on your own verses 13 through 22, which is the rest of the chapter. In a nutshell, that's exactly what happens. Satan goes in. He destroys all of what Job has. Uh, and, and it, you know, but, but doesn't touch him. And he does a real good job of, of going in and doing that. And then in chapter 2, so look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, I love this. He says, And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. So God now you start to get a little insight because I know the first question that all of us are thinking is why in the world would God lift that fence? (laughs) And now you start to understand maybe just a little bit here as God holds Job up as a trophy in the presence of his enemies and said, hey, you made an accusation against Job that he would curse me, that he was a mercenary, that he only served me because I bless him. And now I've shown you you, I've, to, you, you've, I've allowed you to go in and take away his substance, yet he hasn't cursed me. Have you considered my servant Job? And so God says, really, he just serves me because he loves me, huh? And that's all there is to it? Well, verse 4, it says, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So God lifts the fence a little bit more. He says, all right, you can have at his his body, but you can't kill him. So went forth Satan from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. And then just to make it a little bit worse, verse 9, 
It says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Don't you love how Satan can get to the wife? (laughs) But he said unto her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. And so what we, we, I mean, I could spend two weeks probably expounding these verses and and going through point by point all of the the, the various insights and principles and precepts and and all that, uh, that are seen here. And there are many, 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 many. But all that to say and just to point out to you that Satan cannot act independently of God. That God is, is the one that created him and, and, and God uses him. And it's like Martin Luther said, he said that the devil is God's devil. And even Satan serves the purposes of God. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 uh, says this. I'll read it to you. You can write it down and, and you could ask me later. I'll say it to you again if you need. But listen to what God says. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then in Amos chapter 3, verse 6, listen to what the prophet Amos says. Uh, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? In, In other words, he is sovereign over all things that happen. Satan does not act independently of himself. Now, that troubles us because not one of us can answer the question of why good things happen, I'm sorry, bad things happen to good people. Not one of us can, can, can figure out. And, and it's the, the, the biggest stumbling block, I think, in all of life is to realize that the Lord is the doer of all things and that Satan doesn't get credit. You know, and, 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 and every single one of us, whether we, you know, whether we go through something to the depths that Job went through, or not. And I don't think any of us will ever go through something that deep. I mean, when you really look at what he lost and, and what he went through, you know, none of us will ever go through it like that. But we all will experience it to some degree where we personally have to wrestle with the issue of God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And not to say, well, it's the devil. But it's not the devil, it's the Lord. Because ultimately, Satan serves God's purposes. And, and, and that's, when, that's when, when you go through it, that's when you'll read the, those middle chapters of Job. <laughs> you know, for now, you'll, you'll get enough out of the first three and the last four, but there'll, there'll come a point in your life when you'll read the middle ones and, and you'll say, wow, I thought these things. You hear Job's, what Job thinks. When Job, going through it so harshly, wrestling with these things so deeply, that he asks the question, and, he, and he's literally asking himself, can I fight against God and win? I, I want to. Can I? Can I beat him? Can I walk away from God and still? But why is this happening? I mean, those are deep, 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 deep things. We serve a deep, 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 deep God. 
when it's all said and done, and we know even as we're known, and we see all things clearly, our response will be, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. What you did was perfect. The way you did it was perfect. How you did it was perfect. Right now, we can never make sense of the things that we see happen. But we must never give Satan credit where he doesn't deserve it. Or give him power that he doesn't possess. He cannot act independently of God. He has specific boundaries, and he can't cross them. He's sovereign. And, and the things that he did through Job's trial, that's what you've learned in the last four chapters. That's why the last four chapters are important, because you see what he did in Job's life. Um, God, trials are good. You know, you read the New Testament, you read Romans chapter 5, it says we glory in tribulations. And that doesn't make sense to the natural man. James chapter 1 says rejoice when you go through diverse temptations. And that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But God does things in our lives through these trials. He reveals himself to us in ways that we would not otherwise know him. And so he works it to the good. You know, and that's just one thing he does. does you know, whatever. So anyway, Satan is not the evil equivalent to God. He cannot act independently of him. Um, this would be number three now, is that Satan, uh, that Satan looks evil. <laughs> that Satan looks evil. That if we were to see Satan, he would be this like hideous, scaly dragon uh, type thing. You know, yeah, in his, in, in his uh, you know, dr- dragon-esque uh, illustrative form there in Revelation, he is a dragon. Uh, but but it, even the word dragon means an alluring, beautiful type of serpent. And there's something about him. He, he, Lucifer means light bearer. And, and he's not an evil-looking, red-suited, pointy-tailed, pitchfork-carrying uh, goat, you know. He's, he, he's, he's beautiful. And he looks righteous. He looks good. You know, I'll move on from that. But the scripture, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 13 through 15, if you want to write it down. Um, and, and, and I'll just quick questions on that. Number four, um, m- m- myth is that Satan lives in hell and that he rules there. And that's a myth. People think that, okay, well, you know, heaven is God's kingdom where God's throne is. And hell is Satan's kingdom where Satan's throne is. That's false. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact... The Bible teaches us that no one has ever been in hell yet. That hell is currently uninhabited. You know, that Satan is not, you know, who was it? One of the, somebody set forth, it was one of the guys in that folklore age, the Middle Ages, that said that Satan's philosophy was basically, I would rather be a ruler in hell than a servant in heaven. Thank you. That is who it was. Yeah, and and that's not... Uh, the, the case. It's not what it is because Satan is not a ruler in hell. In fact, when Satan ends up in hell, he will not be a ruler there. The Bible says he will be bound there and he will be tormented there, not a tormentor. He's not walking around with a wheelbarrow shoveling coals down people's gullets, you know, like it's pictured in the comics, you know, but rather he, he himself will be tortured there. Well, you say, well, how does that flesh out? There's a great passage. Turn to Luke chapter 16. In verse 19, it says that there was a certain rich man 
which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. Great illustration. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, let me point out to you that this is not a parable. Anytime that the Bible, you know, or that Jesus tells a parable, the Bible says that Jesus spake a parable unto this end or, you know, unto them and said. But this is not a parable. This was fact. Jesus said that there was a certain rich man. And he gives names, and, he, and this is a specific case, something that happens. And then he says, and after the rich man is buried, verse 23, it says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now the word hell that you see right there, you might even have it in your margin, or it might even say it right in the text, depending on what translation you have, is the word Hades in the Greek. Hades. And Hades is not hell. We speak of hell as in the final uh, destination of Satan and of of unsaved and and Christ-rejecting man. Hades is the equivalent of what we would call county jail. County jail is is where central booking is. It's where you go when you are first, you know, accused and confined awaiting trial. So county jail is more or less a holding place while you are waiting your, your trial, and then you, after your judgment, you will then be sent to your ultimate destination, see, where you are either, you know, convicted or, what is it, acquitted, if you're set free, you know, and that's, that's what happens at, at judgment, and then you go. And so Hades is a place of torment, as we're told here, but it is not Hell. The word for hell that we're going to see in Revelation is the is the Greek word Gehenna. It's not Hades. It's Gehenna, and that's the lake of fire. That's that's hell that we speak of as hell. And so, so what's going on here? We'll read on. Um, it says, "In hell he lifted up his eyes in torments, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me." And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from there. Now, mark that. That's another thing that you should understand, is that this, these, these judgments are eternal. That there is no changing of the mind. There is no such thing as rescuing. I mean, the, here you have it. Jesus is saying himself, this is red letters here, that you cannot pass from one place to another. That death is final. And that the, it says, the man is appointed once to die, and after this, the judgment. And that's it. And that's, that should cause us to shudder and rejoice, to realize these things, you know. And so then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. 
And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And that's so, so true, you know. That's like, you, you either believe the word or you don't. <laughs> no sign or anything else is going gonna, is gonna to do it. Even the resurrection of Christ, you know. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, what we understand is that there are two compartments in the grave prior to the death of Christ. You have Hades, which is where the unrighteous dead go, hence the rich man in the story. And then you have this place that Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. It's the same place he was referring to when he said, this day will you be with me in paradise there on the cross when he spoke to the thief that was hanging next to him that repented. And so prior to the death of Christ, if you were dying in faith, you would go to Abraham's bosom, a place where you were comforted. And if you were in unbelief, then you would go to Hades, which would be county prison. Now, when Jesus died, the Bible says that he went, and, and two things. First of all, he preached to the spirits which were in prison, it says in Peter. That would be, you could look at it as on both sides of that, Jesus had a message, and the message was the same to both sides. The message was victory. To the, to the one side, it was a message of condemnation because it meant that their destiny, their fate was sealed. They were Christless forever. But on the other side, it was a message of victory, of hope. And that's why the other verse, Ephesians chapter 4, and it's somewhere around verse 7 or 8, somewhere in there, he said, it says that he led captivity captive in other words when he descended into the grave he preached victory to them but not saying hey one day you're getting out he said let's go and he led them out of that place as comfortable and as paradise like as it was he led them out of that place and he brought them into the presence of the father that he was the first fruits that rose, but with him he brought all those that had died in faith. You understand? That's why in Matthew chapter 26, 27, somewhere there, it said, and I'll, I won't say that. I, I can't be that general. My conscience doesn't let me, sorry. Matthew, it's Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And it says this, it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks did rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now that's crazy, but it's cool. And they were then ushered into the presence of the Lord, the blood of Christ being now paid, the price for sin being paid, and the way into heaven being opened. And so now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, meaning that there is no longer Abraham's bosom. Now, when a believer dies, they go into the presence of the Lord. They go directly to heaven. But when an unbeliever dies, they still go to Hades, which is the other side, the county jail side of you know, the grave awaiting the judgment. So 
Revelation chapter 20. You could turn there. What happens then? Satan's never been to hell. People have never been to hell. How do they get there? When do they go? The first person to go to hell is Satan. (laughs) He's not there yet, but he goes first. That's Revelation 20 verse 10. Actually, that's wrong. The the beast and the false prophet go first, then Satan. (laughs) And then verse 11 of, of Revelation chapter 20 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no more place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, that's a huge verse. Remember it, highlight it, go back, read it, think about it. These are the dead, meaning these are not saved people. Because saved people are not dead. The Bible says that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, that we pass from death to life. The death has no more power over us. We, Jesus said, you have eternal life. Not that you will have it. When you accept Christ, you have eternal life. You are no longer dead. You are living. So these dead that are at the great right throne are those that died apart from Christ. The second reason that we know that is because it tells us that they are judged according to their works. You and I are not ever going to be judged according to our works. If, if your faith is in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not by works, lest any man should boast. Your works are irrelevant. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his grace he has saved us. See, so your works are gone. They've been washed away. You are credited with the righteousness of Christ because of the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. You understand? These are judged according to their works, the things that they did. These are the people that said, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. I hope my good outweighs my bad. Problem with that, one bad outweighs all the good. (laughs) That's the problem. It doesn't work. You can't be saved that way. Because the standard is Christ. If you can measure up to that standard, then you can get in based upon your works. But if you can't, you're toast. And that's why these, they're at the great white throne. Now, you and I will also be at the great white throne judgment. However, it will be a much different situation. Because you and I are not going to be on trial there. You and I will be the witnesses. What do you mean? Joe Schmo is called to the stand. He didn't accept Christ. He rejected salvation. He died apart from Jesus. And he's called. He's summoned before the great white throne. And before his eyes right there, his whole life will flash. Everything he ever did, every word he ever spoke, every good, every bad thing, Everything will be brought to his attention at that time. And, and after the movie is done being played, which I'm sure will be very quick, you know, the Lord will ask one question. And this is biblical. The Lord will say, he will not say, 
All right, explain yourself. Talk to me about May 14th. That was a, he, he's not going to say any of that. You know, he's going to say one thing. What did you do with my son? John chapter 16. It says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not in me. That's the only sin that will be accounted or asked of a person at the great white throne. What did you do with my son? I I didn't know. I didn't know he needed your son. That's where you and I come in. Lord will say, Doc, and Doc will stand. And the guy will go, oh, him? That crazy.